0: Faith, hope, love. We've got a lot going on today. Uh, Some of you maybe have noticed we've got a new baptismal enclosure deal. Um, If you've been baptized in the past at Discover Church or you plan on getting baptized in the future, we'd love it if you took the opportunity to sign uh, just with a Sharpie, and we'll provide you a Sharpie. Don't just come up and doodle on the thing. But sign your name on there if you've been baptized at Discover Church because we, we want us to visually be able to see a movement of God. And in our second service, we have three people being baptized, which is going to be incredible. And yes, praise God for that. And I just have the opportunity to read their stories and see the work that God is doing in their life. Many of them maybe even grew up in churches. One of the stories I read was somebody who grew up in a church, but it never really connected until they were part of this, move, this unique movement of God that God is doing in Discover Church. So I'm just so happy. I'm so pleased and I'm so excited. And I just want to affirm that in you that you are doing a work, that God is doing a work in you and I see it and it's changing people's lives, which brings us into 1 Thessalonians. So we're, again, we're gonna be talking about faith, hope, and love. We're gonna be studying the, the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's really a letter. It's a very short letter. It's about five chapters long and it's written by a man named Paul. And before I kind of steal my own thunder, let's just read the first verse here together. It says in 1 Thessalonians Verses, starting verse one, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, one of the reasons why we're studying this letter kind of right out of the gate is because many theologians believe that this is one of Paul's very first letters that he wrote to a church. Now, some history on these names that we're reading and the, the place that we're talking about is this is Thessalonica, And when the gospel was brought by Paul, you can read about this in Acts chapter 17. When the gospel was brought by Paul and a man named Silas, he refers to him as Silvanus here. He is a Hellenistic Jew. And as a Hellenistic Jew, not Paul, but Silas, as a Hellenistic Jew, he was a Greek. He spoke Greek. He's thought to be a citizen of Rome. Paul is the same way. Paul is thought to be also a citizen of Rome. He's also a a Jew in high standing, Paul is. He was considered a member of the Sanhedrin or basically the Supreme Court of the Jewish Council, making decisions that could lead to people's death. If you read the book of Acts, Paul, or Saul, was standing by holding people's coats approvingly as people were stoning someone named Stephen because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's who Paul was. Paul was basically a terrorist towards Christians. He was sponsored by the Jews to be able to go out and wipe them out, prosecute them, and get rid of them. That's what his job was. After Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, Paul was doing a great job at this until the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul on a road and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And and Paul met Jesus in this powerful way, turns his life around, becomes a man that would begin planting churches all across the Mediterranean rim at great harm to himself. Many of the letters that we read in the New Testament were written in a prison where Paul was waiting to be killed, to be martyred for what he believed. It cost him everything to begin planting these churches. In Acts chapter 17, he and his friend Silas go to Thessalonica to share the gospel. Something amazing happens there. They receive this gospel. They receive this good news about Jesus Christ. And to use the language that we might use today, a revival broke out. It changed their lives, it changed their families, it rewrote history and that same gospel is available to us today and it's doing the same work. It's changing people's lives, it's changed my life, it's changed many of the people's lives in this room today and history has been changed as a result. But the people in Thessalonica, when they heard this, their faith was on fire and we're gonna begin to see the love of Paul overflow through this letter. And so what Paul has done when they shared the gospel in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, they were only able to stay there for about three weeks before the local Jews of, of Thessalonica became so jealous. They essentially worked with some very bad people to incite a mob that would come after Paul and Silas in order to get them in front of a court somewhere where they would be Declared that they were guilty of death and be killed. And, and so Paul and Silas have to run out of Thessalonica and they leave. But the people who live there cannot leave. And they become under great persecution and oppression. And so he sends Timothy and Silas there and they come back with this good report. And this is Paul writing them now this letter of encouragement. And so he's telling them right out of the gate, he's saying, I'm so grateful for seeing what the gospel, this good news, is doing in your life. And what I want us to see, is what I want us to know, is that the gospel, what Jesus has done in our life, what the salvation has done in our life, is so good. If Jesus is in you, then he is changing you. And I'm so grateful for what the salvation through Jesus has done in my life, how it's given me a new hope, how I've been transformed, how I've been renewed, how I've been loved, how I've been adopted into this family, how I've been accepted because of salvation. But the burden I want us to carry and the question that I, I want us to struggle with this morning is why are we keeping that goodness to ourselves? It's like when my kids wake up on Saturday, they feel like no rules apply. And so they wake up Saturday morning and they're like, we're having ice cream and cookies for breakfast. And I'm like, no, you're not. It's too early for that. And I collect it, go to my room and start eating ice cream and cookies in my bedroom without them knowing. And that's just because, why? I'm hoarding it for myself. It is, it's it's not good for them. It's good for me. But when we think about what salvation, why would we want to bring that, that real hope that real comfort to other people, that peace in the midst of trials. It's like when we talked about Jacob's story last week. Jacob wasn't just fighting for himself. He was fighting for the generations that would come after him. That's who he was fighting for. And what if salvation wasn't just for us? What if salvation was meant to be shared with somebody else and that's the whole point and we're missing it? For some of us, what God has done in us is he saved us. And that's where our story ends. But what if there's a whole nother chapter to the fact that we're saved, we've been redeemed, that God wants to unlock in you this morning? Another chapter in your life. So verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, consistently mentioning you in our prayers, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that he's not thanking them for their work of faith, for their steadfastness of hope. He's not thanking them for their labor of love. He's thanking God for those things that he sees in them in a way that's more powerful. I thank God for what he's doing in your life that is well beyond you. I thank God for those changes that are happening in your life. And just so you know, that costs you nothing. You can do that for another person and you should do that often. When There's another believer in your life. You should go up to them. You should encourage them and say, I see God changing you because that matters in them more than you know. Give thanks to God in front of them for the work that he's doing in them. And then what Paul does is he links faith, hope, and love together. That we see so many times in New Testament letters, not just Paul's letters, but faith, hope, and love are always interwoven as almost the essentials, of the Christian life. If we're gonna live and say that we belong to Christ, follow Christ, then faith, hope, and love is an essential part of that. And what the New Testament authors are saying is that if you have salvation, then you have faith, hope, and love, and those things should be overflowing out of your life. And I love the words that he uses. It's almost like he sat down and thought this out. So when he talks about labor of love, the word for labor that he's using there is the word toil. And it's like like a struggle. Think about a grind, or blood, sweat, and tears. We've talked about it in our last series, that, that love is a hard and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. What Paul is describing here is, in this context is that kind of love that is a self-denying love. They honored others above themselves. They sacrificed their needs so that others might know the love of Jesus Christ. And he talks about steadfast hope. That word means endurance. So think about staying power. Think about perseverance. Think about stamina. Think about those things. Remember that their faith cost them something. They were dying every day because of what they believed. And likely all of them knew somebody who was dying because of this belief. And you might picture themselves as locking themselves in their house, maybe setting up booby traps around the house, like some kind of post-apocalyptic show that you might watch. And like they're, they're cowering in there. They boarded up all the windows. You know, people are coming to get them. And they're trying to be very quiet about the fact that they believe because if anyone finds out they're believers, they could die. You might see them as kind of like wilting flowers. But Paul paints a very different picture. He says their faith is unwavering. It's powerfully persevering. That they're unwilling to budge from the hope that they have in Jesus Christ because Jesus is everything to them. And he talks about their work of faith, which I love that he's linked work and faith together. Have you ever wondered what work without faith looks like? What does work without faith look like? Look like, And we all have maybe, I mean, this kind of was popular in the maybe 90s and early 2000s, but we all have some experience with this. Has anybody ever gotten an email from a Nigerian prince? You know, it's like that prince who, has, who says, I am rich. I have so much wealth. I have so much. I just need you to give me $1,000 so I can have access to it. And once I have access to that wealth, I'll give you riches and wealth beyond your wildest dreams if you can just give me $1,000. And some of you are like, seems legit, take my money. And other people are like, no, that, that's obviously false. That's obviously a lie. It's fake, it's empty, it has no substance whatsoever. And the same way, a faith without deeds is fake, it's empty, and it leads others astray. And yet all over America, there are churches full of people who profess a faith in Jesus Christ and they live their lives as if they've never met him at all. And I don't want us to be that kind of church. Let's not be one of those churches. Let's be a church that realizes that true faith leads to works of faith, labors of love and steadfastness of hope. And then we see why why Paul is, thankful for him. He's thankful for him not only because of their work of faith, steadfastness of hope, and labor of love. He's, he's thankful because he says, for we know, brothers, loved by God. In some translations it says, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. He's thankful that they're beloved by God and has chosen them. And we could spend a week debating the theology of predestination versus free will, we could talk about that for forever, but the reason why Paul uses the word chosen, or maybe the word that you're familiar with, might be elected by God, was not to spark this kind of theological debate. The reason why he uses that language is to give them assurance and comfort. Paul says, I'm grateful that you have salvation, but where I want to camp a little bit is where he says that you are loved by God. All throughout the New Testament, that phrase loved by God or beloved by God is used not just by Paul, it's used in 1 John as well, all throughout John's writings, but what the term is implying is that believers are loved by God in a special way. Believers are loved by God in a special way. Some of us believe that God loves everybody the same, and it's true. In James, it says that God shows no partiality that we're all his favorite. But what what James is talking about in that moment is he's talking specifically about those who are in the kingdom of God. It's true that John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but inherit eternal life. But you need to understand that God has a love for the world, but his love for believers is different. Where do we get that? Ephesians 5, Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now look, I love my town. I love my church. You're my people. And I love you. Really, I do. But I do not love you the same way that I love Malika. And that is a good thing for both of us. But I love Malika wildly different than the way that I love you because 18 years ago, Malika and I stood up on a stage in front of a pastor and we exchanged vows in front of God and man and we made a covenant between ourselves and God. We made vows and our souls became one. And we said, no matter what, no matter what she does or what most likely I'll do, We're always going to be together. We're always going to be one. We're always going to be linked together. This is a covenant. It's not a contract. It's not like if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, I have an escape clause. It's not how this works. There's not an out for me. It's a covenant that I've made with Malika. And then Paul goes on in verse 31 of Ephesians 5. He says, therefore, a man shall leave. What he's doing here is he's quoting Genesis. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, this is a profound mystery, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And the same way that Malika and I have made a covenant of love that's different than the love that I have with you, that's the kind of covenant that Jesus has made with his people, the church. God does love the whole world, but he loves the church differently. If you're a believer in this room, no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard your life is, no matter if it's cancer today, or maybe it's relationship issues, your God is bigger than that. Not only is he bigger than that, but he loves you in a special way. You are his favorite. He's made a covenant with you that no matter what you do wrong to him, he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And it's an amazing promise that God makes in a covenant with us through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a covenant that I have with God. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, I am thankful for you. I'm so glad that you're here. My hope is that you feel welcomed, that you feel valued, that you feel loved and that you're welcome to be here anytime you want to, but I want you to know that God loves you. He just loves me a little different. He loves me a little different. It's absolutely available to you though. That love that God has for me is available to you right now in this moment. Through Jesus, you can enter into a covenant relationship with God as well. You can receive a special love that God only has for his church that he can give you right now. If you have that, that, just that, that conversation with him in your heart, God, I need you. I want you in my life. I want to enter a covenant with you. That, that, that can change for you right now. And I don't mean when I say church buildings, I mean people. And as we continue through this letter, we're going to see that Paul begins to bring them hope. These Thessalonians were persecuted in every way. Not only did they drive Paul out of Thessalonica, but the Thessalonians who stayed received incredible persecution, so much so that they thought, which we'll read later as we go through this series, they thought they missed the second coming of Christ. They were like, I thought we were supposed to be saved from this. Why are we going through all this? Hardship. Did Jesus actually come for Kirk Cameron and all of his friends and we got left behind? What happened? Why are we still here being persecuted? And Paul begins to build confidence in them through the way that the gospel was not only presented, but received by them. In verse five, he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for you. Your sake. And it's fascinating to me that Paul uses the phrase our gospel and not the gospel. Because again, this is Thessalonica. It's a place that's ruled by Rome. And there is, at this time, a Roman imperial cult. The the Roman emperors were just weird people, you guys. One of them, Emperor Domitian, literally changed his name to Lord God so that when the Christians were worshiping and singing songs to Lord God, it would be as if they were singing songs to him. And each of these emperors had what they called a gospel. It wasn't a new word. This was a word everyone was familiar with. When an emperor would enter into a town, that emperor's gospel was proclaimed. And what they would tell you is that emperor's origin story. They would list off his conquest. They would list off all the good things that he has ever done. And that was called the gospel. So they were very familiar with the term gospel. Paul is saying this gospel is different. The emperor's gospel is just words. It's empty. It has no substance. It has no power. The gospel of Jesus, on the other hand, is complete. It is full of divine work. Paul walked into Thessalonica with Silas, and he said, I've got good news for you. Jesus died for you. Your sins are paid. No longer do you have to be a part of this temple system and sacrifice animals and do all this stuff and live under this fear like, am I enough? You can say it is finished because Jesus lived that life for you. He's accepted you. His inheritance is your inheritance. He will take on your sin and dress you in his righteousness. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be a child. You could be a woman. You could be a slave. It doesn't even matter if you're Jewish. He says God wants you in his family. He'll never leave you or forsake you. The the, the lamb of God, the lion of Judah, he's got plans for you. He wants to give you a hope and a future that the soon returning king of kings knows your name. He says that you are the apple of his eye and the work of Christ on the cross paved it all. He paid it all and paved a way for me to become new. And I'm being changed by Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is proclaiming to these people. And they hear that and they've never heard that before and it's changing their lives. One of the reasons why they've uh, had so much persecution on them is because like we've talked about in December, Jesus was a king. He was their king. And, And the Romans were very confused like are they serving a different king and began to persecute them. In verse 6, it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the gospel came to you in a divine way full of power. And I know that's true because I've seen the way that it's changed your life. That good news, when it was proclaimed to you, did not return void. It came back full. Who you were before Christ is not who you were after Christ because Jesus has changed you. Be confident in your salvation because the change that I see in you, you shouldn't question a thing. He tells them because they received Christ, the truth of the gospel, that they've become imitators of Christ. And that word imitators, they became imitators in many ways. They started loving people more than themselves. They started sacrificially loving people. They started making different decisions. As Jesus became the center of their lives, maybe morally they began doing different things. Not only was faith, hope, and love overflowing out of them, but even in the middle of affliction, they were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He says in trials, you've had this kind of joy that can only come from the Holy Spirit, not anywhere else. And it reminds me of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Jesus says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away." Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And the other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Paul is saying is I'm so grateful that this news of what Jesus done in your life did not fall on rocky soil. It didn't just sprout up and get burned by the sun or get choked out by thorns. That hardship, wind and scorching sun came and it didn't wipe you away but instead you have a joy that was not wiped away by the circumstances of this world. He says they can be encouraged that their roots grew down deep. It clinged to dirt. It was filled with nutrients and they began producing life-saving fruit. The more mature a tree gets, the more fruit it produces. That fruit of faith, hope, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, that kind of fruit was being produced in their life. And again, the more mature a tree is, the more fruit it produces because it's seen some stuff. Because of the wind is so strong, the storms are so strong, its roots actually grow down deeper. And I know that we're all in different stages. And some of you have just given your life to Jesus Christ. And i got to tell you, buckle up because God's going to do some incredible work in your life. You're going to be, begin seeing changes. You're going to begin seeing fruit in your life. But some of us, the more mature we've gotten, the less fruit we've began producing we become bored. We've almost started going through the motions. You've been going to church your whole life, and it's just a thing that you do. Maybe instead of fruit, you've become bitter. You've become super critical. You've become tired, and you've become angry or just plain busy in the church. You're busy, but you're not producing any fruit because you're not being with Jesus. And I want to encourage you that it's not too late. Jesus says when he loves somebody and they're there, he'll come along and he'll prune them. He'll chop off some branches, which can be a very painful experience. But for some of us, we can walk into that willingly. We can say, I want to trim some of these things out of my life so that there could be more of Jesus. And when there's more of Jesus, I believe that there'll be more fruit. Only Jesus can produce that fruit. He is the vine. We are the branches. An encouragement from a pastor that I heard this week was let Jesus be your rest, not your work. And I know that applies for me maybe more specifically as a pastor where I only seem to lean into Jesus when it comes to like studying for a sermon and so he becomes my work. And for some of us, the church has become your work and not your rest. I want you to be able to find rest that it has been finished through Jesus Christ. Rest in him, allow the vine to give you that nutrients and only in Christ can we produce fruit. If you're not in Jesus, to be honest with you, you can't produce anything because you're dead. This isn't about good pe- bad people starting to make good decisions. This is about dead people being made alive through Jesus Christ. And this is what happens when we produce fruit. It says, so they became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their fruit have made an example to others. He says, your fruit and your faith is producing fruit in Mesodania and Achaia. And I get so excited when I see new churches being planted all over the place. Waynesville right now has three different churches starting around the same time. And it's just exciting to me to see what these new churches are doing in these new towns. And the reason why those churches are going to be successful is because of the faith of the neighboring towns. It's because your faith, like fruit, has produced fruit in Waynesville. Somebody has looked at Waynesville, seen what God is doing in the surrounding cities, and said, hey, there needs to be a church there. And your faith is, is kind of like this, this thing, it's this, this like pollen on the wind that's going over into Waynesville and coming to rest, and it's producing life. It's producing change around the world. If you just look at what's happening in that some of you, probably all of you, that tiny little town in Kentucky. You've got that college out there, Asbury College. So, Asbury's out there, they've got revival happening. Do you know that town is just 6,000 people? There's revival happening in that town. People are traveling from all over the world to kind of show up at that college campus. They said that people are lined up outside by the hundreds. They're saying if you're 25 or younger, if you're a student at another college, you get first dibs. And everyone else has to wait. And then they get in there and they all see what's happening. This revival is breaking out. As people are repenting from their sins, they're praying, they're worshiping. And it hasn't just been contained there but they're saying it's broken out. They're seeing revivals happening at uh, Cedarville. There's revivals happening at Lee University. There's a re- revival happening at Samford University. It's breaking out all over the place because people are witnessing the faith of Asbury College. That's what faith does. Paul says that, that, that Paul and Silas and Tim, Timothy don't need to say anything because their actions are saying it all. And I think some of us, if we've read the story, we've been following the story, it's been 11 days of them worshiping and praying constantly now. Maybe you've come to church today anticipating a little bit more because of their faith. That's what faith does. And what he's saying to them is he says that you are publicly and openly serving the one true God, that you're not hiding your faith. You're not quietly coming to church, but you are loudly proclaiming the work of God in your lives. And cities are changing because of that. And Thessalonica, they're doing that in a city where they could die for doing that. Trees produce fruit because fruit contains the seeds that are necessary for a tree to reproduce. The fruit is the very thing that allows a seed to spread. One of my favorite things uh, living in a mountain town is the mountain laurels. In the springtime, the mountain laurels break out. We like going up to Pickens Nose, or at least before we rolled off the mountain. But anyways, we like going up to Pickens Nose and there's like this mountain uh, laurel like tunnel that you walk through. And it's just so gorgeous and beautiful. And even when they start wilting, like their petals fall all over the place. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's like God's confetti. It's like God's glitter. It's like everywhere. It's awesome. But when you look at these mountain laurels, like you could see each of those individual pods on there. I, I'm just a ballpark. I tried Googling how many pods each of these mountain laurels had and I couldn't come up with an answer. But I think we could all agree that there's at least 300 on each tree. But I was able to find how many seeds are in each pod. In each pod, there are 700 seeds. And so if there are 300 pods on each tree with 700 seeds in each of them, hold on, I wrote down the answer because I'm not good at math. It's 210,000 seeds, 210,000 seeds. Now imagine what could be produced if we lived our lives like a mountain laurel. I mean, mountain laurels produce Mountain laurels, that's what they do. Disciples, people who follow Jesus, produce disciples. It's what we do. That's how the gospel is supposed to spread. That's how lives are changed. That's how faith, hope, and love become the identifiers of not just you, not just a church, but an entire town, an entire region. What if people came to Franklin and weren't like, this is the top outdoor town, but instead came to Franklin and were like, man, there's nothing but faith, Hope and love. When I walk into there, these are different kinds of people. And we can transform a town and a nation that way. And I believe that we have it in us. Because I know that Jesus is doing stuff in you. He's doing stuff in this church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's not let our fruit just rot on the ground. Let's do something about it. Paul is going to turn the focus from what they're doing to who they are. And so in verse 10, he says this. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, what Paul is doing here is he's painting a picture of them being actively and excitingly waiting for Jesus' return to take away their pain. They're not just going about their lives as if Jesus isn't coming back, they're asking themselves, what do they want to be caught doing when Jesus returns? What what kind of change do they want Jesus to see in them when he comes back? And that's the same question that we need to ask ourselves. What do you want your life to look like when Jesus returns? Sometimes we look at the return of Jesus as something that clearly won't happen in our lifetime, so we don't need to worry about that. But we don't know that. The point of living expectantly isn't that we're anxious all the time. The point of living expectantly is that we would produce more fruit The point of living expectantly is that we would share more of what we have, that we would make disciples. Paul brings them back to Jesus, this great king, this mighty warrior who rescues us from judgment, rescues us from our sin, and he gives us peace, knowing that on judgment day, that day we're all going to have to face, I will be found innocent, and I can have that kind of confidence. I can live with that confidence, that kind of hope that kind of love, that kind of faith. We can stand in the face of storms and we can say, come at me, bro. We can say that kind of stuff and it would change this world because we know that our God is bigger than the storm. We will worship him no matter what comes our way. Paul starts this letter telling them that he's not just thankful for their faith that leads to salvation. He tells them, I'm thankful for a faith that is changing the world. And that is what we're called to. We're not just called to a faith that just changes us, but everybody we come in contact with. And so the question that I have to ask myself, and I want to ask you because it's a bold question. If Paul were to write me a letter today, if Paul were to write you a letter today, what would he say about us? Would he say the same thing? I think he might be able to say the first part that I'm grateful that you have found salvation in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that. But would he be able to say that I'm grateful that your faith is changing the world? Would he be able to say that I'm grateful that you're allowing the fruit of salvation to change this town and the whole culture that is around it and to change for for the sake of the kingdom of God? And I know people who have done this. I know people who have opened up their home to children who are in need. I know people who have done that. I know people who meet regularly with three or four people, just discipling them, studying the word together, equipping them to make disciples. I know people who share their faith to somebody every week. And some of you are those people. You were at a restaurant somewhere, you sat down and your waitress or waiter, or maybe even bartender said, hey, I go to Discover Church, maybe you should check it out. And you've come today because somebody shared what God is doing in their life. And my hope and my prayer is that it changes you. I know others who are at Celebrate Recovery, either serving or as a part of it, and they're leading themselves as well as others on a journey to find freedom in Jesus Christ from any addiction they might suffer with. I know people who are doing that. It's a beautiful thing to see. I know people who are meeting with others in the midst of crisis to offer them love and hope. There are so many stories that I haven't even heard, but my hope is that this would be an inspiration to you to use the fruit of your salvation to change the world. That's the next chapter that God has for you. It's not just that you were saved, you've got fire insurance and you can get to heaven someday because heaven is not a place for people who are afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for people who love Jesus. And because we love Jesus and because of what he's doing in us, we can't help but share that good news with others. This time next year, what would Franklin, what would Rabin County, what would Clayton look like? What would your town look like? How different would it be? Because you're simply being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I know that we can do it because I've seen you all do incredibly hard things. And I have seen the work of God In you. So I'm going to pray that God continues to do that work through us. Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now that as we study this thousands of year old letter written to a group of people in a culture that was wildly different than ours, God, that your spirit would make your word come alive as you always do that would be meaningful for us today, that it would spark something in us that this world cannot contain and neither can we, that we would recognize that a revival doesn't just start in a church somewhere, it could start in an office, it could start in our homes, it could start around the dinner table. It can start here in our town as we become a people who say, I will not let my fruit rot on the ground. God, we are so grateful for the new life that you have brought to us and to many people in this room. God, and I pray for that person in this room today who says, I wanna be loved in a different way by God than the sincerity of their hearts right now in this moment. They could say, Father, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I'm tired of living my life for this world. This world's gospel is empty and fruitless and has no power that they could say right now, Jesus, I wanna give my life to you. I want you to be my king. I want you to come into my life and change everything. God, I pray right now that they would believe that when you rose from the grave, you made that possible. The grave is empty and now today, everything is possible. God, I pray that you would awaken us up to this work that you're doing in our world and in our lives. And we are so grateful for new life in this room and it's all because of King Jesus and it's his mighty name that we pray amen we give God some glory this morning God is good like I said there's going to be three baptisms next service and for some of you I'm just going to be honest the bold step you need to take today is that first step in being baptized And you might not have thought today was going to be the day, but if today is your day, or if it's next week, we can make that happen for you. It takes two seconds for me to fill up this baptismal. We can make that happen. But if next service is for you, we want to make that happen. You could talk to somebody at the Connect Center. We'll dunk you with all your clothes on, son. We'll make it happen. It'll be worth it because you will be saying in that moment, Jesus, I choose to follow you. And my hope and my prayer is that today, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, don't let that just stay with you. Tell somebody about it. Tell somebody sitting next to you, tell somebody the Connect Center, tell me when I'm bouncing around all over this place. We wanna know, put it on a connection card. We wanna know that you've given your life to Jesus Christ because we want to go on this journey with you with faith, hope, and love. And if you need prayer of any kind today, today after the service, we'll have some prayer partners up front that would love the opportunity just to pray over you with the faith, hope, love, and the joy and the power of the Holy Spirit. With that being said, if you're able, if you'll stand with me, let's close in worshiping our King together.